yes, I have this kind of horrific diagnosis and horrific disease, but I have this freedom now to just be who I want to be, exactly who I am, not who I want to be, who I really am. And that's, that's a real blessing for me. Hello, this is Gavin McLeod-Valentine, and this is the What Say You podcast. In my career as a celebrity facialist, I've experienced some truly insightful conversations with some of the world's most famous faces. I often leave my clients wishing that these stimulating discussions could be shared with the public. Therefore, I decided to create a safe space to bring these inspiring conversations to you, providing illuminating insights into what really drives my guests, their passions, their purpose, their people, life lessons, and aha moments. I invite you to discover more about their journeys and hope they inspire yours. I had the great privilege of meeting today's guest a little over a year ago at a beauty discussion at Annabelle's in London. I was immediately struck by her charisma, her humor, and her raucous laugh, which instantly shifted the mood of everyone around her, transforming those traditional door English faces into effervescent smiles. I was bewitched by her life force of energy and the brilliance of the sparkle in her eyes. I learned a great deal of many things about her during the course of that lunch. Notably, that she was the daughter of the renowned Hollywood producer, the late Elliot Kastner, famed for such movies as Where Eagles Dare and The Missouri Breaks, and Tessa Kennedy, the esteemed award-winning interior designer who had been responsible for transforming some of the world's most important public spaces and private homes. What I also learned during that luncheon was that despite her outward radiance, this was one of the very first public engagements that she'd attended since being diagnosed with not one, but two forms of cancer. As her fight continues, I'm incredibly honored that she would take the time to speak with me today about her life, her battle, and the lessons she's learned along the way. I hope that you will also learn something valuable from our discussion, and you too will be inspired by this incredible woman, mother and friend, who teaches not just me, but all who know her, bravery, resiliency, and courage every day. You're listening to What Say You, Melissa Kastner. Wow. Thank you so much for joining me, Melissa. It's such a thrill, and as I said, a great honor to have you here today. What an introduction that was. Thank you, Gavin. Lovely to be here with you today. That's just how you showed up. So pat yourself on the back. So let's get into this. You know, one of the things that really struck me in that instance that I met you, and of course, I'd heard about you through our mutual friend, Libby, and I wasn't really aware of your story at that time. And, and perhaps she had mentioned to me, but I hadn't connected the dots. And when you came and sat down looking like, you know, uh, an outtake of the erotica sex book by Madonna with that cap, <laughs> I, um, I just thought this, this girl has character. She has drive. She has chutzpah. She's completely um, in her self-worth. She is strong and she is fun. There was no indication whatsoever in your spirit or in your body that you were actually dealing with something pretty traumatic in your life. Do you know what, Gavin? I think at the beginning, I was in so much denial myself that I had been diagnosed after having 47 years of being doctor-free, never going to the doctor, and suddenly being diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer, which is what my late father had um, mm. as an older man. You know, mm. I was a relatively healthy yoga 
healthy young woman with two young children to be diagnosed with that was such a shock that I think I went into denial. And I think the denial maybe helped me at the beginning because it just made me think that I'm not sick. And so I got that mantra in my head, I'm not sick because I didn't feel sick and I didn't mm. think I was about to die. Although the doctors gave me six months at the beginning because they, my liver was so enlarged from the colon cancer um, and had spread to the liver they said you have about six months if you don't do the treatment and 33 months if you do do the treatment. Um, I think I was in so much shock that I just put it to the back of my mind and I thought, this is not me. And I basically, my mind over matter stopped me from feeling sorry for myself or going into that hole. I completely relate to you, although we are in different circumstances. Um, as you know, I've been dealing with cancer for the last year and a half. And, and it is fascinating, like sometimes being in denial is a way of framing it, but simply refusing to give in and say, I'm a sick person, it actually gives you so much energy and strength and courage to push through it, despite what everybody else is saying. And, and actually, I don't know if you feel this, but I often think that friends and family and outside people, they expect people who are going through a health crisis to simply represent what they, their ultimate fears are about a disease such as cancer, that you simply give up, that it's all over. Yes, exactly. And actually, my whole thing was, I, as I always have always said, is I just did, I, as the new Bond film, who I used to work for, the producers of the Bond film, No Time to Die, I just, I just, you know, I wasn't ready to go. And I had just actually done a huge um, thing with the BFI the weekend before I was diagnosed from one of my dad's films, the 50th anniversary of his war film classic, Where Eagles Dare. I had spoken in front of a, a panel of the old filmmakers that were involved in the film with them and my um, mother and spoken in front of this whole crew of BFI members, like 600 people, and I had no idea I was sick. And so when I felt this lump on the Friday and I went into the doctor on the Monday and got diagnosed, I was... I just said, no, mind over matter. And as you said, I just, all my friends and family, the love and support. And when they were like, you're doing so well, you've got this. I, I just knew I had it from the beginning. And now I've amazed the doctors at the Royal Marsden in England. They're like going, we've never seen anything like this because I don't know if I, I think you know this, Gavin, as I didn't know this at the beginning, as it progressed, and I had done 12 sessions of chemo last year they discovered that I one of the tumors that they thought was coming from the colon and into the lung from that had gone to the liver and lung was not actually from the colon. It was from the uterus cancer that they also discovered I'd had um, at stage four. So that had that uterus cancer had gone to the lung. So basically, I was I I I, I am challenged right now of juggling two stage four cancers. And to be honest with you, I think I've got in such a mindset that. I'm going to beat this. I'm not letting it get me that I have just powered through. And it's almost like I've got a kind of stranger things power over this. <laughs> like I'm, I'm going, no, you don't have me cancer. I've got you. So, um, I think that's, that's, and that and the strength of the family and friends around me has got me through right now. I mean, I think you are incredibly remarkable and what's so sort of inspiring about, 
just your outlook and your output in life is that you are somebody that doesn't just take things lying down. You are a fighter. You grit your teeth and get dig your heels in and you are prepared to do whatever it takes for, for yourself, yes, but also for your family. I know that you are an incredibly devoted mother uh, with beautiful children who is so representative of the care that you've afforded them. Thank you, Gavin. You know what? Um, you say you go to any lengths. And actually, funny enough, I had another disease 20 years ago, the disease of addiction in my 20s. I realized I was an addict and so sought help for that. And funny enough, I used to say it when I first got diagnosed with cancer last year, I was like, gosh, it's amazing how people treat you when you have cancer versus how people treat you when you have an addiction problem. Because when I used to walk in a room back in the 90s, people would look literally look like, oh my gosh, someone's just farted because they didn't know how I was going to behave or how I was going to be. And when I was trying to get help, people were like, just pull your socks up. And I, you know, that disease is so kind of like um, looked down on in a way by society because because people think you you ha- you can you know you can stop yourself doing, but when you're in the midst of addiction, you know it's not that easy to um, to fight it. You know to without the support and love. And I think what I found with the cancer is the love and support that came flowing through from people, you know, from 20 years ago that you know look kind of looked down on me a little bit with the addiction problems. Like, why does she have an addiction problem? She had such a great childhood. She grew up in such a, an amazing life, you know, what's her problem? I think suddenly to see everyone, all of those people that I loved and admired come running to my side last year, I think that's that's also gave me a lot of strength and a lot of, it gets me actually emotional right now because I think I didn't want to let people down 20 years ago with that other disease of addiction, but I think I did because I don't think people understand it so much. However, <laughs> Second year into cancer, I understand now with with addiction, you have more control over it. You can go to meetings, you can go to treatment, rehab, and get help. Whereas cancer, it can just pop up at any time, literally. Over COVID, I got a whole new lump on my back, which was part of my uterus sarcoma cancer, which um, they had to cut out like nine weeks ago. So I think, you know, there's a really interesting debate around that you know, like how people are treated with cancer, as you probably have gathered yourself, the compassion and love and support rather than people that have addiction who are literally like people going, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? You know, I think you raise very interesting points and very clear points. I I think people have the misunderstanding, especially if they've not been impacted by addiction themselves. They have this sort of sense that, well, cancer is something that is out of your control. It happens upon you. Now, we could look at it biologically. It could be a response to our environment. It could be up to our stress. It could be a number of factors that are going on that could contribute cancer, but it's out with our free will. However, there is this sort of mistake or misnomer that addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs, whether it's anorexia or obesity or whatever it might be of your addiction of choice, it often is out of control anyway. It's not like you choose, no one chooses to be an addict. And I remember this very clearly because I was very good friends with Tama Palmer Tompkinson. And it was almost like with an addict, although she had recovered, everybody looked at you through that same lens forever. 
that waiting for the penny to drop, waiting for the mistake to happen. It was almost like you could never recover from it. You could never be healed. There's a big stigma around that. Yeah, a huge, huge stigma. Huge. And God rest her soul, you know, she, she, she had big addiction problems, but, you know, sought help and probably didn't feel, feel the love and support, you know, because people had just got tired of it. However, it was not her fault. She was born that way, as Lady Gaga says. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're all born different in different ways. Like my mom and her twin sister couldn't be more different. I'm much more like my mom's twin sister who, you know, was like a chain smoking, whiskey drinking, you know, even though they're both 81 and they both act, to be honest, they do actually both look great, I have to say. Mm. And that's just an example of like, you know, someone who was more addicted than, than someone who basically my mother's never really had a, never had a cigarette, never really drank. She may have like one margarita. Um, but it just shows you like you're born that way. You're, you're born that way. And um, like COVID at the moment, which is a huge huge problem it's it's really like um you know luck of the draw who gets it it's the same with Mm. cancer because you can ponder thinking why did I get it was it because I didn't eat enough vegetables when I was you know in my 20s or you know you could just you could just torture yourself for hours anyway I'm going to speak for myself I could but um it's not it's just things are thrown at you at life I think that just make you stronger make you the person you are and you know, we can't dwell on things or uh, analyze it all in our heads because we we drive ourselves nuts, I think. Yeah, and there's some things we'll just never know. You know, we'll yeah. never really know the cause of this, that, and the other. Let's go back a little bit, though, because, and I do certainly want to get to where you are today, and I think COVID and cancer is a very interesting conversation at the same time. But let's go back. So you had been living one could say an aspirational life. You are an actress yourself and a producer. You are, you know, a society mainstay. You were life and soul of the party. You have great friends, some of which I know. And, you know, you are really such a reflection of who you surround yourself by. And as you said, you had never really gone to doctors. You were healthy. You were strong. You were vital. So tell me about the instance that you detected something. You thought, ooh, I should get this checked out. What was it and how did that occur? Okay, I was in the bath and I was just, I just by accident felt my, the right part, the right side of my um, abdomen. And I felt this huge kind of hardness. And I thought, oh my gosh, this yoga is really paying off, you know. And I was <laughs> like, look at, look at that. I've got, a, I've got abs. And then I realized it wasn't on the left side. So I had a friend of mine, Pip, who was over at my flat feel it. And she was like, no, no, you should go to the doctor on Monday. Then I had another friend of mine, Alex, he felt it. And he went, no, you should definitely go to the doctor on Monday. You should go to the doctor today. It was Friday. And I said, I can't, I'll go on Monday. And I don't, I wouldn't have even normally gone to the doctor. I just thought because Pip and Alex both said, go to the doctor. Um, I decided on the Monday to go to the doctor. By Tuesday, now, did that give you anxiety over the weekend? Were you worried or thinking about no, going to the doctor? No, as I said, I had this big um, project that I was working with the BFI, the British Film Institution, with. So I had, my mind was really focused on that and getting that done and dusted Saturday night. So I wasn't. I was more anxious about that than the lump. Actually, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. I was living, as you said, living my best life, really enjoying life, you know, to the fullest. 
And then I thought, okay, I'll go to the doctor on Monday. So on Monday, I went to the doctor, Dr. McGreevy, my private doctor here in London. And he, and he's my children's doctor since they were babies. And he said, let's get you a scan. We got the scan and they discovered half my liver was covered in cancer. He called me the Tuesday and said, half your liver is covered in cancer. And that's not the primary source. And as soon as he said that, I knew it was coming from the colon because that's what my dad had. And I presumed I'm very genetically made up like my dad. I presume that what it, that's what it was. So it was just before the English um, half term, which is like a mid, mid, mid semester break. And I had was going to go skiing with my kids. So I asked my cousin if she could take them. And she did, Flora. And I had to stay in London and get col- colonoscopies, scans, x-rays, biopsies. And a week later, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer that had gone to my liver and lungs. By that by that point, we did not know that it was uterus cancer that had also gone to my lungs and that I had that I was battling two stage four cancers. The one, the sarcoma from the uterus is one in a million people get it. And I had been wrongly diagnosed with a fibroid in 2016 and had a fibroid taken out that actually was uterus t- cancer, uterine cancer, sarcoma. So I basically um, was just in shock when they told me in that doctor's office and when they said, you know, six months, if you don't do the treatment, 33 months, if you do the treatment, I wanted to scream, no, you're talking about something, you've got someone else's results. I'm absolutely fine. Um, so basically when they said that, I, I just said, right, pump me up with as much treatment as you can, because I can take this. So halfway through my treatment, they looked at my scans and they went, we don't see results like this. The tumor that was on your liver has shrunk so remarkably. We can operate and forget what we said about 33 months because we're going to take it out. So they took out half, 60% of my liver. They took out the tumor in the lung. And that's when they realized it was a rare, rare sarcoma from the uterus. And they were like, look, we've, we've dealt with the colon one. You've amazed us all, but now you've got uterus stage four as well that's gone to the lung. So we have to put you on another chemo. So this year I started a chemo, which is so strong, I can't tell you. And what happens is I take it on a Thursday every three weeks. And by the following Thursday, I bounce back and I'm back to myself. You wouldn't know that I'm sick. You And, and, I'm, and I haven't actually, to be fair, touch wood, had any, like, any major sickness or pain throughout the whole year and a half since I was diagnosed. And so tell me, before you had the lump checked and the results were confirmed, had you had any inkling or any sort of weird things going on beforehand? Had you had upset stomachs or anything that you would now look back and go, ooh, that was an indicator? I look back now, and that's a good question. I think I really rack my brain about that. The only thing I had was terrible cramps. And I think... I was just, as a woman, I was just thinking, oh, I'm just getting cramps. You know, you, we've, we start getting cramps when we're like 13 or whatever. Um, and I just thought that's just part of being a woman. And I didn't realize that those cramps maybe have been an indication that you get yourself to a doctor. So my advice to anyone now would be, as of the age of 30, if you can, get a yearly checkup. I think it's so important and actually I think I think everyone should do it because you just don't know and cancer is such a silent disease like um you wouldn't know you were sick until you start taking the treatment for cancer and then you start people start losing their hair or 
getting um, very skinny. That hasn't happened to me. I have lost my hair, but I haven't got skinny. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, if you can get checked, that would be my big advice to people. Well, Don't I think you've touched wait. on two really, really important things. First of all, I think the optics of cancer are very confusing to people because unless you have gone through it yourself or you have been exposed to a family member or friend who's at this initial diagnosis level of the of the illness, then what one associates is literally the television portrayal, the movie portrayal, the commercials advertising cancer centers around the country. And what they show you are people who look very frail, very sick, as you say, oftentimes without hair. And what people fail to understand is, I think we can both relate to this, is actually the medicine that works to defeat and to fend off the cancer is often the thing that actually makes the patient feel sick for the first time. It's yeah. that realization that that trauma of that treatment makes them feel and look different. So people associate cancer with the treatment, not necessarily with what someone looks and feels like when they just have the diagnosis of the disease. Yeah, exactly. I would never have known that I was sick at all. As mm. I said, I just didn't ha I didn't feel sick. I didn't look sick. I was living my best life and mm. to be told that that such major um, news like that is just so shocking. I think, you know, I, I just had to be strong. I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I, I had, I, I just wasn't ready to go right then and there. That's for sure. And absolutely. And, and, and I think this is a very key point for anybody listening. It is vital that you take your health in your own hands, that you go and you get tested. You do regular blood work. You have scans. Even if the doctors say you don't need it, I would say if you have it in your family, if you have an inkling about it, to go forth and demand your right to access to healthcare. I found in my, yeah, I found in my personal experience, you know, about five years ago, I started to have very uncomfortable um, symptoms. Whenever I'd go to the bathroom, my urine would burn like crazy. I was getting pelvic pain and cramping. It, everything was just very uncomfortable. I went to the family urologist because my father had had very advanced uh, prostate cancer, but at the normal age, so to speak, around 60 something. And um, so I knew it was my family, but also I always thought of that as an old man's disease. So I went to the urologist and they did all the tests and ran everything. And, and sometimes when things aren't conclusive, they just give you this broad stroke diagnosis. And I think oftentimes with sort of nerve pain or stress-induced pain, they don't know what to say. So they say, oh, you've got fibromyalgia. With men, if you've got anything sort of uncomfortable around the waterworks, the urinary tract, they always say, ooh, that's chronic prostatitis. And that's basically a blanket diagnosis that means what I've come to understand, they don't know what the hell's going on or what, what yeah. is going on is not yet detectable. I made it my mission that every year that I would just go and check in with the urologist just because not because I had wild symptoms, not that things were getting worse. In fact, they were getting better when I removed the anxiety from the situation. But it was on my own volition, my own choice to see the doctor, that a year and a half ago, I came back with a stage three prostate cancer diagnosis, right? And that was simply because I felt that it was my responsibility to keep an eye on this. I would mm. hate to imagine what would happen had you yourself not been aware of your body and its changes and had mm. great friends to support you in that decision. And I don't know where I would be if I hadn't sort of taken the decision to look after myself in a way that was clear um, today. I mean, gosh knows how far I would have been advanced so yeah. I do think that's a key point think about your health 
take action in your health and be selfish about your health. Yeah, I think so too. We just take it for granted, our health. And, you know, and also another thing is just to be positive, like just be positive. And, you know, even if you are, you know, at stage four, you know, just keep positive, keep beating it because yes, it cancer, you know, there's no cure. There's no, there's no, there's no um, guarantee, you know, that you're going to live into your older adult life. But you know what? If you can be positive and you can beat it at its own game and be outsmarted and, and, and just say, no, I'm not going to become a victim in life in general, in, in anything in life, don't become a victim, I think. And just power on and live, live your best life, live a day at a time. That's the best thing that, um, that, that I learned in my 20s from the other disease of addiction is live a day at a time. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. All these, all, all my friends and family that are coming over and being so supportive and loving, I sometimes think, oh my gosh, like I might outlive all of them. And <laughs> yet, I, you know, I'm getting all this love and support and attention and care and I'm loving it. But actually, a part of me thinks, you know what? Who's to say that, like, you know, I'm not going to live as long as they are, you know? You don't know. But my, but as you said, my main thing would be keep a check of your health. Like, keep on top of it and just keep keep getting your, your blood work done when, you're, when you can, you know? And I think it almost should be mandatory, you know? Like, everyone should have, have it done, you know, as, at, at some stage you know, I don't know what the health system offers in America. I, th- I know we have NHS here, which is amazing. And I think, you know, it's, it should, there should be more testing. Definitely. Like with COVID, there should be more testing. I agree with you. So tell me about this, your fortitude, your resiliency, your determination, your step up a lip, despite being a daughter of the empire, which obviously we love to give British that's due for our, uh, our composure. But who in your life has inspired your way of looking at the world and pushing through this disease and not being defeated in the first innings? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I grew up a lot. My dad loved boxing and I grew up a lot um, when I was younger in the boxing world. My dad, even though he was in the film business, he always had ringside seats and he was, I hate to say it, he was great friends with Don King. Um, and I think in, I think like boxers, you know, like fighters always inspired me. I don't, I didn't like watching it so much because of all the blood. I, am not very good at blood and gore, but, um, I think just those fighters and then reading about reading Muhammad Ali and about him, he's so inspiring to me. I just think every quote he says rings a bell with me. And I think my dad too, he was a big fighter. You know, he grew up with nothing on the streets of New York and and became one of the most successful independent film producers. One of the first people to make independent films away from the studios. I think, you know, and, and of course my mom, she, she's always so calm and so consistent and so relaxing to be around. And I think those people, those people that are, you know, that I grew up with really inspired me. And also I think some of my friends who I see, you know, doing the kindest things, they inspire me. It's interesting actually, because if you look at it, your 
exposure and your family, your father's dynamic and interest in fighters and his ability to fight for his own life and to create a, a worthwhile and meaningful existence for himself has directly empowered you to be a fighter yourself. But actually, if you look at the energies between your father and your mother, it almost is a little Muhammad Ali. You've got the soft, spiritual, sensual, loving, gentle type, and then you've got the roll the sleeves up and let's get going vibe too at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, funny enough, um, they were like chalk and cheese and they had one of the most successful marriages in Hollywood, you know, for, for 27 years. And then finally, my mom was like, okay, enough is enough. And they lived separate lives after 27 years, but they really did. My, they couldn't have been more opposite. That's so funny. You should say that. But my dad actually as well was given, I remember in Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York was given three weeks to live and he ended up living 10 years. Um, because we were all called to New York. We were all in the room with him. I called all my family and said, you've got to come over. The doctors are saying it's not looking good. And after that, after he saw everyone in the room, some of my family members, they hadn't been speaking to each other. And I think all the love and everyone just gelling together and everything. And I, I, I have to say, I think that's what brought him back. And he lived for another 10 years to bug us all and scream at us and call us <laughs> and tell us what to do. But you know what? Everyone gelled. And I want to say that another thing. When I got diagnosed last year, all the little things that I was worried about, this and that, they just went out the window it, because it was such a fight for one's life that I just focused and I just thought all these little things don't matter anymore. Or, like I, things that I would usually get upset about or nervous about or anxious about, just, just I, I feel m much calmer now than I used to be, I have to say. And maybe it was the cancer that did that. I don't know. Yeah, because I think one of the things about the modern life that we're in, we get so sort of amped up about things that ultimately do not matter at all. And the, you know, the advent of social media and ways that we communicate today and everybody checking in and nobody really showing up for one another and this, that, and the other, it sort of puts you down a spiral where you start to focus your attention on things that, as you say, when you're fighting for your life or, you know, when we're old and gray and we're at the end of our lives, we're going to look back and think, what was the point of that? Why do I really care? What? Why did I enter into that argument? Why did we fall out? Why did I worry about what I looked like? Well, I look I great. Know. You know? I know. I know. And also, there's there was a great book an ex boyfriend of mine in New York once bought me called "Don't Sweat the Small Stuff," and it's all small stuff in 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 brackets underneath. Mm. And that 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 so rings true to me now. Like, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. And then I have friends that go. I, you know, you're so positive. Like I have friends that are moaning about things that just don't matter. And I say, look, at least you've got your health. And I, I, I say, you know what? That's true. At least you've got your health. Health is mm. wealth. Health, you know, Steve, Steve Jobs, wasn't it? Um, yeah. the Apple creator, you know, he had everything and yet his health deteriorated and he couldn't, he, you can't buy health. You, you literally can't. I mean, even no. if you have the top doctors, you can't. And, you just, I, I think a lot of health is positive thinking and being positive and being in the moment, which is hard these days, as you said, with social media, emails, everything constant coming at you, but just to be in that moment and to be still. And I have started meditating, which is unbelievable for me because I was never a still person. And what has it and done it, for you? It's really 
quiet my mind, actually. I do it every day with my brother, Dylan. And I have to say, it helps me so much. And it, we only do it for 20 minutes, Gavin, a day. Mm. But it's just quiet in my mind. It's made me be in the more in the moment, in the present moment. I Yes, of course, I'm you know constantly getting emails or texts or meetings or nowadays Zoom meetings. But just to be in the moment and like just to sit down and play a game of backgammon with your kids or a game of cards, it's just those little things really... That you that I used to take for granted, now I'm just I, I just hold so dear. Now that you've had sort of the reality check, so to speak, whereby you can understand what's important and what's not important. When you look back to pre-diagnosis times, what were some of the things that you felt at that time were a real stress or anxiety or worry for you? That now, in hindsight, you think, what was the point of investing in that? Is there anything that particularly comes to mind that would be a regular worry or stress for you? Yes, definitely. Actually, and also I think this whole last year with COVID, I think what was very stressful for me was getting to different places at different times and juggling two kids, work and commitments, juggling it all. I think now, I think I love the fact that we can use technology. If we're if we've got it, we might as well use it. Like if you can't beat it, you might as well join it. Like basically, you know, just slowing down and not having to rush everywhere and be certain places and feel like you have to be on form all the time. Like I can now, I can start crying and everyone will just accept it. You know, um, mm. basically that's you know just to be myself and just to be true to myself and not you know, not, you know how you can put on that kind of mask in society, like that everything's fine and everything's okay. And a friend of mine even wrote a book, um, for, for mid forties, our, um, our, my age group called I'm absolutely fine. And it's basically the funniest book I've ever read. Annabelle Rifkin wrote it. It's brilliant. She basically, you know, how everyone goes, I'm absolutely fine, but my child has chicken pox at home. My, um, my job, I just lost my job. I just, you know, basically she just goes underneath everyone's mask. Like I'm absolutely Mm. fine yet you're not. So the most, the, the most important thing for me right now is that I've really been able to express how I really feel. Like I'm not putting on that brave face. Like if I'm really upset or sad, I let it out. I think I suppressed a lot of stuff and maybe that's something that one shouldn't do anyway. And that maybe that's something that does, you know, form kind of things in your stomach that shouldn't be there. I don't know. Who knows? We, I don't have the answers to that. But I know that for me now, I don't suppress anything. I just, I'm true to myself. If I can't make something, I'll say I can't make it. I'm too tired. Or if I can, I go, I don't like to be flaky ever. My dad Mm. always taught me never be flaky. So if I've made an arrangement, I always like to try and keep to it. But if, if it's really out of my reach, then I just apologize and say, I can't make it. And people understand people don't judge, you know, it is interesting actually, because in one hand, when one's given a diagnosis, um, such as yours, or any disease that is really a, a fight for it, you get this idea that you've suddenly been handed a prison sentence. But isn't it fascinating that in that said sentence, that actually what you do find yourself getting closer to is a sense of freedom, freedom to be, freedom to express, freedom to be authentic? 
Yeah, to be authentic, 100%. And freedom just to be, yeah, just to be yourself, you know, just to, 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 to not worry about what anyone thinks. I think we, 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 especially in this society, we worry so much about what people think or how we're, you know, all that social media, how we're, you know, portraying ourselves. I've made some really honest videos during COVID about how I feel and if I'm not doing great and trying to help other people knowing how I feel, you know, how other people must feel that are in even worse situations. You know, at, at least I've got a roof over my head. My children are healthy. I've got a lot of support and love. And, you know, I just think people that are going through this that don't have even that, you know, and I just want to reiterate that it's just so important to have a good network around you of love and support. And I'm so blessed with that. Now, one of the things that you mentioned, obviously, is your children. And I think that when somebody gets a diagnosis or someone's dealing with a a health situation, you know, very often it's not really oneself that one thinks about. It's how am I going to communicate this to the people I love? How is this going to impact their life? And it becomes a lot of the time the anxiety and the stress and the emotional release is in relation to other people, not necessarily just about one's own well-being. When you were given the diagnosis, I'm sure your children were at the forefront of your mind. And I'm curious to know if you were comfortable is how did you go about sharing that information with them? And and how did you describe what the disease was and where you were in the process? Okay, well, that's an interesting question. When I got diagnosed last year, I decided straight away to tell them exactly what what was going on. I didn't want to beat behind the bush. Mm-hmm. I didn't want any secrets. Um, so I told them exactly what was going on. And they both had experience of cancer in their lives with my dad, even though they were very young. Mm. Jack was five and my dad died and Sophia was one. But they had also seen a very good friend of mine who also grew up with me in Los Angeles and London. We had very similar parallel lives. This friend of mine called Charlotte, and she got diagnosed with ovarian cancer when she was 40. And mm. she, she passed, no, she got diagnosed at 38 and she passed away at 41. So they'd seen seen her process too. Um, so they were very upset when I told them. But Which because when you're what you're saying, sorry to cut you off, but the, the observation that I'm making here is what must have also been very difficult is that their relationship to the idea of cancer is ultimately death, not survival. Exactly, exactly. And so they were very upset thinking yeah. that this is it. But I think they've seen the, the fact that they've seen me fight it so much and being positive has helped them. And I haven't beaten behind the bush. I've said, look, I've got no control over this. This could come up at any time, but I will continue to fight as as I am with strength and courage and positivity and love and what will be will be. And also I've explained to them how lucky we are that we've even got this time. Like I could have walked out onto Oxford Street and got hit by a bus or not seen a motorbike coming or, you know, um, just falling down a flight of stairs. You know, you just don't know or being in a car accident. You just don't know. So how lucky are we that we have this time where we can just enjoy this moment and be in this present moment. And, you know, it's almost like a gift. It's almost like you're right. It's almost like even though it's a prison sentence, it's almost like a freedom pass. 
like you, you know, I'm starting to make little memory boxes that I probably wouldn't have done, you know, had I had not mm. had this. And that's something they'll be able to have for themselves and for their children and their, and my grandchildren who I may or may not see, but at least I've, I, I've been able to, you know, leave something, you know, some memories. So I feel lucky that I've got that, but it, you know, obviously it's not the best situation, but the kids, you know, they're really strong. I think kids are sponges. They, they pick up. And so if you're strong, they're strong. And if you're honest, they're honest. And, you know, I just try to be 100% honest with them about what's going on. You know, they ask questions about what's happened with the scans. They get anxious just before I having a scan, just like I do. But we're all in it together. And actually, also, this COVID this year, everyone's in the same boat. We all are. The whole world is in the same boat. And there's, you know, there's so much more compassion. And, and you see something like that, what happened the other day in Beirut. And then suddenly, everyone is like, oh, my gosh, that just happened. And then, you know, it's like those, there's like 300,000 people that were left homeless that day. You know, it's yeah. just, the you know, things just... Happen in life that is just horrific, out of our control. But you just, as a family, you just stay in that your unit, and you just try and be loving and compassionate as much as you can. Of course, you're going to get angry sometimes. Of course, you're going to get upset or emotional. But that's just part of life, right? Absolutely. And the thing is about you. Yes. Okay. You are strong. You are determined. You are focused. You are the most incredible example of positivity and and really putting your mental energy in the right space. But tell me, there must be times where it does get difficult and it does get hard and it does sort of rear its ugly head and confront you with some real fears. What, what, what does that moment feel like for you? What are the fears that come to mind in that process? Is it, is it mortality or is it your children or is it simply that you've, you've got more to do and more to say? No, my big fears is more, I, I don't fear death. I'm not scared of death at all. I think mm. we, I'm actually looking forward to that peace and quiet because life is so busy sometimes. But my big fear is the people I leave behind. Like I don't want to outlive my mom. I don't want my mom to, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to, my, I'm the only girl after four boys. I, my, I, I thought my role was going to be to be with my mom when in her older age. And now to be confronted by this is difficult. And you know, for the kids, I, I, I don't want, you know, I want to see them go down the aisle. I want to see my son at his first professional football match. I want to see my daughter at her first professional basketball match. That's what their, their dreams are. I want them to follow their dreams. I want to see them do what they, you know, see what they become. And uh, that's my big fear that I, that I miss out on that because we don't know what's going to happen on the other side. Like, do we still get to see that, what our families do and how they are, or do we do we not get do we miss out on that? Once you're dead, are you dead? You know, who knows? That's the big unknown. I think this is what's so scary, particularly about cancer, is that it does um, it makes one look at one's own mortality, but at the same time, it makes everybody else around you very conscious of their own and very conscious of your, you know, the sense of, of losing the person that they love. And I know, listen, I've had cancer now twice in a year and a half, and first time it was bad and this time it's been slightly worse and I'm going through it, but it's okay. I'm positive, but I'm not really thinking about my mortality all the time. I'm not really harping on about 
Um, oh, I've got cancer, I've got cancer, I've got cancer. Now, of course, when I'm going through radiation and I'm meeting doctors and I'm having colonoscopies and I'm having scans and breath tests and stuff, of course, you're, you're then reminded of the fact that you're not in good health. Yeah. But it's not a conscious thought all the time for me. And a lot of people that I know who have overcome cancer and in, in, in many instances, stage four as well, it wasn't really a constant daily thought for themselves. Is that a mm. fair reflection of where you are? Yeah, it's not a constant thought. And you know what? Because I, I did witness a, a friend of mine's niece, sadly, tragically, getting into an accident last year, last summer, right after, just after I got diagnosed, um, it really made me think, you know what, you can't think like that because you just can't, you know, when, you, when it's your time, it's your time. That's, it's not up to us. We're not the boss. We're not, we're not in control of that. You know, there's something I believe, and I be, and this is another thing I wanted to touch on with you, is I became a lot more spiritually enlightened, I think, when I got cancer. I had some real moments where I felt my dad's presence because, and I talked talk to my mom about it, I just felt him like he was, it was almost like a sign from him. He was trying to tell me something. I know it was a bit harsh being diagnosed with two stage fours, but mm. I almost felt like there was something he was telling me um, almost like he was going, pull your socks up, which is one of his <laughs> expressions. And, yeah. um, you know, I just feel like, you know, it's, we're not, a, we, we're not the director of this show. So there's something way more powerful than any of us out there, you know, and you see it with these storms and the, the, the natural elements and what, you know, these disasters that happen in the world. We just don't, we, we, we you know, we don't know what's happening. You know, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you know. Now, you've touched on meditation as a tool that you've been employing 20 minutes a day with your brother. Yeah. What other therapies, modalities, or just passions or interests have you been indulging in and utilizing to help you ready your body and your mind and your spirit for the journey that you're on? That's really good. I've, I've, I'll tell you exactly what I've been doing. I've been hanging out a lot more with like friends of mine in person rather than just texting or um, you know, Instagramming message. I've actually been making the time to see friends of mine when I'm feeling up to it. Um, I've had a lot of people come visit. I've told the kids to have their friends over. I mean, obviously during this lockdown, it's been more difficult and more challenging, but I just have invested more time in actually being with people and talking to people and keeping myself busy, my mind occupied, reading a lot more than I used to, way more, like reading and looking at different inspirational stories, I have to say. And um, also just reaching out a lot more. I, I, you know, I used to self-isolate if I was feeling a little bit down. And now I just, I feel more comfortable telling people, you know, I was embarrassed to feel down, you know, like I was almost like I shouldn't be feeling like this. I, I have no right to be feeling like this. But, um, you know, sometimes you do. Have you always been able to receive the affection um, from your friends and family? Or is this something that you've had to get used to and learn to, uh, to process, accept, to let in during this process? I think I've always been very accepting of that. I've always loved mm. a, a love and attention. I think being the youngest of four boys and five kids in the family, the youngest, I think I was always craving that kind of attention and love. Mm. And I think I've always been accepting of it. And in fact, one thing I have to say, hand on my heart, is since I got diagnosed, I really have enjoyed all the love and care. Yeah. 
I mean, I have too. I mean, I, what's so interesting about me is I think I'm far more uptight British than I ever realized I was because suddenly I was always sort of avoiding people showing up for me. I didn't know how to recognize it. I didn't know how to accept it or process it. And uh, invariably I was showing up for them all the time. But when they did the same in return, I felt, ooh, I don't, this is a weird feeling for me. And uh, through my own process and having an inundation of, an outpouring of affection and love, interestingly, from people that I never felt very close to, who didn't really know me, but somehow they were able to cut through the noise and all the superfluous imaging and posting and rhetoric that I've put out there. And they could pierce right through and see, I see you and yeah. I'm here for you. And, I, I, yeah. and it, it took a long time for me to go, oh, crikey. But at the same time, I then, I don't know if you feel this, I think you're slightly different as... Sometimes I feel that when you're going through this process, it is very private. There are moments where you really don't want to be discussing it with the world or you don't want to have endless conversations. And I have felt a little bit of pressure to, to always have to update people and always have to check in and always have to respond and say, no, I know what you in. mean. Funny yeah. you should say that. It can get overwhelming that too. So it what I've just done is, is like, a, I've just done like a group WhatsApp to my nearest and dearest that I can just check in with that and and leaving voice notes sometimes if I'm not up to actually having a mm. phone call to let them know how mm. I'm feeling but um I have to say um I I have to say it's interesting because when I when I was back in the 90s when I was at this place in Sierra Tucson for the other disease of addiction um, in my twenties, I remember this woman in group therapy, I was breaking down and crying and she said, I really like this, this part of you, you know, this, and I thought, what a nasty person, like how mean is she? Like, she's just jealous when I'm happy, go lucky. And she's just mean that she said that. But actually now I realize because it was my authentic self, it was me. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't putting on any, and I think that's something very interesting. Like some of my uh, friends have like warmed to me even more. And I thought maybe they're just happy that I've lost all my hair and that I'm not as, you know, how I used to be. And, and actually it's not, it's just because I'm actually just getting closer to the more authentic me, the more real me. And I think that's, that's a big draw to people. And I think a lot of us in life have put on these faces and these, you know, pretenses and actually it can make you really lonely because people don't like it. People can sense it out too. You know, and so when you get to more uh, an authentic you, people are drawn to it that, you know, and it's not because they, they, it makes them feel better about their lives. It's actually because you're being more real. A hundred percent. And actually, it's very interesting whether we adorn ourselves through the haircuts that we have, the color we give <laughs> ourselves, the makeup we use, the clothing that we use to display our character for public appearances and how we shield ourselves, um, both emotionally, spiritually and obviously aesthetically. We are constantly in disguise and not really letting people in. So now that you've gone through this process and you are getting closer to your authentic self, what have you learned about yourself? Who is Melissa at her core? I think actually at my core, I'm a, I'm a really, I, I care so much. I almost take the weight of the world on my shoulders and I have a lot of guilt and shame. And I don't know whether that's because I, my dad's Jewish and my mom's Catholic and I grew up with half Jewish genes and half Catholic genes, that guilt. But I almost feel like I beat myself up and I've, I've tried to really get away from that um, 
because it's not a good core to have, actually. It's almost like you're in a ring with, with Muhammad Ali or Tyson yourself, you know, the way I treat myself. So I've just tried to do a lot more self-care, like treat myself like I would treat someone that I, that I really love and care about. Because I think I had this kind of like self-loathing that I just, you know, was just treating shame and guilt. And, and, and I think I've let go of a lot of that since, since I got diagnosed. I just said, you know what, this, this is who I am. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And yes, I've made some mistakes in life, but you know what, you have to give yourself a break and know that that's what we all do. We've all got that you know, draw that we're not proud of, or, you know, that, that thing we've done that we've regretted, you know, you, you can say I've had no regrets in life, but at the core you've had, we've, I've had some regrets that I've done things and I would have done things differently, but you know, it's life is a learning curve. And, um, I think I've learned a lot this year for sure. That's for sure. And 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 again, it goes back to that sense of freedom, doesn't it? That you've been afforded doing this process. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's something that I'll take with me forever now. You know, like, I, I yes, I have this kind of horrific diagnosis and horrific disease, but I have this freedom now to just be who I want to be, exactly who I am, not who I want to be, who I really am. And that's that's a real blessing for me because as I grew up in – Hollywood, there were a lot of masks and a lot of darlings and putting on the brave face and maybe being in a car with with my whole family and screaming and yelling, but arriving at someone's house and everyone having to be like on best performance, you know, it's almost (laughs) like an act, you know, and just not, just not acting that anymore. Just being exactly the way I, I feel being really in touch with how I actually feel, which is interesting because I remember going around in, in group therapy again back in the nineties and they'd say, how do you feel this morning? And I would, I didn't even, I wasn't, I was so out of touch with how I felt. I didn't know. So, mm. t- so today I can say today I feel, I feel hopeful and sad because of what's going on in the world, but I feel hopeful. So that's mm. how I feel today. And I check in with that. So where are you today in terms of your health, your prognosis, your treatment plan? Um, where are you with that? And, and then after you've, you've let me know about that, I'd love to know how the situation with COVID has actually impacted your treatment, if at all. So let's start with where are you today health-wise? Today health-wise, funny enough, I just got results yesterday. So what they would say at the medical term is stable, which is funny because I said to my doctor yesterday, Dr. Jones, I said, no one's ever described me as stable in my entire (laughs) life. And we had a good laugh about that. But at the moment, stable, nothing's grown. Um, Mm. Treatment's working. I'm responding well and I'm strong. Um, How COVID's impacted my treatment. Luckily for me, I was in between chemotherapy. So I was very lucky. But a friend of mine did actually pass away over COVID because they weren't able to get their, their, um, their chemo, which to me was very sad. And, you know, it's, it's just, the timing was just, you know, off. And she, she unfortunately was a young mother of one, she was 29. Her son was six. It's, it really impacted me. And then I, and then I, my friend, a friend of mine said to me, yes, that's, it's really sad because I was really down about it for a while. And 
my friend said, but that's not your story. And I, and I, you know, I was like, yes, you're right. That is not my story. Mm. Did you ever, I mean, I know that you've been going through treatment in London and that you are, as you've said numerous times, you're very um, happy with your doctors and you're in very sure, solid hands there. Did you ever consider at any point coming to America to seek treatment? I did, but I didn't want to leave the kids and go to America. And also, I'm so happy with my team at the Royal Marsden. I couldn't have asked for a better team. So basically, you know, I, I, I have a lot of family in America, but I didn't really have the desire to go there because I didn't want to leave the kids and I wanted to be close to home. And I, and I actually couldn't have asked for a better team, to be honest. That's great. And of course, what we've learned is home, home, the actual stability of being home is also part of the therapy for survival. Yeah, 100%. There's nothing like your own bed, right, Gavin? Nothing like it in the world. And on that note, on that note, the kids and I are actually going away on um, Sunday for a little, little, we haven't been away together for ages since last year. So we're going on a little trip on Sunday. So I'm really excited about that. But it just it makes you appreciate when you come home exactly, you know, how, how home is where the heart is. And where are you going? Because, again, a lot of people who don't go through a situation such as this, they assume that you can't live a life, that it's all about treatment, all about suffering, all about, as you say, staying home, staying in bed. So where are you taking yourself off to? We are going with a friend of mine to Sardinia and going on a little boat trip. So it should be amazing. I've never been to that part of the world. And yeah, we're leaving on Sunday and we're coming back on Thursday. The respite that you need and certainly deserve. Before I let you go, I just want to touch on something that I think is very important for anybody who's going through this process. Maybe they're at the initial stages of their diagnosis And like everybody else, they start to panic and they start to worry. They look at the optics of treatment, whether it be chemotherapy, whether it be weight loss, bloating, hair loss, skin rashes, et cetera, et cetera, fatigue and so on. From your own personal experience, having going through very tough, aggressive, strong forms of therapy, what has the experience of these treatments, these aggressive forms of treatment, what is the real experience of that like? Uh, well, when I got stage four acne last year, I was actually delighted that I had it because I, I was able to show my my te- just teenage children that you can have acne and it's like, it's not a big, you know, it's, it's people still love you, you know, because mm. I remember when I had spots when I was younger, I was like, no one's going to like me because I've got spots. So I actually went with it, but the bloating and the emotional stuff and the steroids making you up and down. I found that very hard. I found, and I still do, especially mm. right at the, the six, six, five, four to six days after treatment, I, I, I don't feel well at all emotionally. I, I just feel like a shadow of my former self. I don't feel, I don't feel myself. And then I bounce back each time like a rubber ball. And that's what's amazing the doctors because they're like, wow, you can take this aggressive treatment and bounce back. So I, in a way I I feel like even though even through even though it's been really tough I really am proud of how I've handled it and how I've keeps bouncing back and keep coming back um and even I'm proud of the fact that the doctors say that they're, they're impressed by me because I was never really impressive at school I wasn't book smart or <laughs> you know uh I, I didn't get all the grades but I have to say I'm proud of how I've handled this and how I'm going through the treatment because it is it is a tough treatment it is aggressive and and there's no 
denying that, but the fact that I keep bouncing back just reminds me that I can do this and I can fight it. And when, when I'm, you know, when I'm ready, when, when it, when it's my time, it's my time. That's, it's not, I'm not, it's not my, that's not my choice, you know, mm. my choice is to live right now and live my, and live a full life and be there for my kids. So, you know, that's my, that's my main goal right now. And isn't it amazing? I mean, at the very beginning of this journey, one would, you know, I think hair loss is something, especially with women, it's such a, a, a focus that people put on when they come to terms with their diagnosis and they get their treatment protocol and they know that chemotherapy is going to be part of that. For anybody who is at the forefront of their, their treatment plan that is nervous and upset and very connected to their hair and that sort of sense of being themselves, what would you say is a moment of guidance or of solace in that for those people to understand what that's like at the beginning of this journey? Well, I just think you have to accept that that's going to happen, but it will grow back. And there's lots of great wigs out there. And, you know, even girls in their 20s that are um, going out now because of COVID, because I, I know a lot of millennials and 20-year-olds, they <laughs> even wear wigs because they can't get their hair done. So they're all wearing wigs now. So it's not that big a deal. I mean, you know, it is quite shocking to be bald at the beginning, but you just get kind of used to it. And actually it's, it's this summer, I've really enjoyed just letting the wind blow in my bald head, to be honest. <laughs> and being and liberated. Liberated. Yeah. And it's so much less hassle, but um, it will grow back. And believe me, it grows back even thicker than it ever was. And everyone says that you get this kind of chemo curl that it just is so thick. So don't, don't despair, you know, just keep it in the day and, and don't despair. And there's so many great wigs or hats or scarves that have built in things so that your head doesn't look to totally flat. You know, there's so many things out there. And if there's something that you don't like, invent it, get creative, you know, I love be that. creative. Before I let you go, I have one final question that I like to ask everybody. And that is really about the people, the passion and the purpose that is in their life. Now, I know from our conversation that the people who have really supported you and propelled you in your life are ultimately your children, your parents, your family, and of course, your wonderful devoted friends. As you look at your life here and now today, what would you say is your passion and what would you say has become your purpose? My passion is definitely life, you know, living and being here on this planet right now and being there for my family and friends. Um, and my purpose, I think, I really think, and this is something that I'm really proud of, is that last year in December, I went ice skating to this thing at Somerset House and I bumped into one of my chemo nurses and she came up to me and she went, do you know what? I was on the ice with my daughter and she said, I just need to tell you, I think you've been sent here because cancer is so rife now. One in two people are getting it. Mm. Um, I think you've been sent here to teach people how to do it because when, when you were doing chemo last year and it wasn't COVID, you had like two or three friends around. You were almost having like a tea party, whereas other people just sit there and like, you know, just like let it, you know, believing that they've got cancer and believing that this is it. This is their final episode. I think she said, I think you've been here, sent here to teach people how to do it. So if that's my case, I'm really proud of that. And if that's my calling, so be it. I'll teach, you know, I'll tell anyone how it is and how, how I've, how I've conquered this, you know, this horrific diagnosis and how I've, how I, how I've continued to keep going and bouncing back. 
I think it's a lot of mind over matter, Gavin. Melissa, I have to say the bright, charismatic, courageous, powerful woman that I met, I'm so relieved and thankful that it's the exact same person Uh that I have experienced showing up today. Although I will say closer to her authentic self, there's no denial whatsoever going on with you now. It's such a pleasure to have you. And I want to thank you for sharing your very personal, intimate story, for letting other people know who will experience your journey through this podcast about the options available to them, how to find the right mental state to push through, to survive, to grow, to expand in this process. And I wish you nothing but total love, support, and I'm rooting for you at every step of the way. And again, I just want to say you are one in a million. You're a unique, intrepid, inspiring woman. And I'm very proud to call you my friend. Me too, Gavin. I feel the exact same about you. And thank you so much for having me. And please, if anyone, any of your listeners wants any more in-depth advice or um, tips or anything, please give them my contact details and I will be happy to help. Happy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to What's Here You with me, Gavin McLeod Valentine. Don't forget to subscribe to the series on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at LordGMV. And please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and most importantly, share with anyone you think will be positively impacted by today's episode. See you next time.